So I think we've said a number of times how the Buddha taught about suffering and the end of suffering, and that he never just taught about suffering, but always included in his teaching the possibility of the end of suffering, that this is something that we can know and experience. And in his many teachings, he gave many variations or lists, teachings about both suffering and the end of suffering, and sometimes lists or teachings that included both. And the Four Noble Truths is a the classic concise example of his teaching, where he posited the noble truth of suffering, there is suffering, the cause of suffering, but also that there's an end to suffering and a path that leads to the end of suffering. And then I spoke last week about dependent origination that really is an explication of the first two of those truths, Um, talking about suffering and the cause of suffering and how, because of ignorance, we get caught in this cycle of just repeating uh, the same actions, even though we think that somewhere out there is, is happiness, somewhere out there we're going to be free of our suffering, we're actually doing the, the very things that cause suffering to happen, and so we're caught in a way. I want to talk tonight about a teaching that takes off from that teaching on dependent origination. I mentioned it briefly in, I think, a Q&A session the other day, um, called Transcendent Dependent Origination or Transcendental Dependent Arising, different translations of the term. Um, and I think at this point in the retreat, it's perhaps a time where we might be able to appreciate this teaching because it's somewhat complex. Again, it's a list of 12 causal conditioned links like dependent origination but it expands the third noble truth, and in some ways the fourth, it's pointing to the ending of suffering and how we experience that for ourselves within our meditation practice. The fourth noble truth that Greg spoke about last night really is a very um, practical understanding of the path that includes all aspects of our experience, including our kind of relational aspects the relational aspects like action and livelihood and speech. This is a particularly meditative unfolding. It's really depicting the journey of practice and deep meditation experience. And what's um, amazing about it is that it starts from suffering. It starts from the human condition, right where we often find ourselves, and step-by-step shows how the path can unfold and lead to freedom. So this teaching is not found many times in the suttas, perhaps only a few times. But Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of the great scholars of our age, says it's an incredibly important sutta. And he's actually got a great article on it, if you get interested in it from this talk. He has a very long and extensive article on it in Access to Insight and talks about how important it is and how um, it reflects the depth of the Buddha's understanding over and over again. And as I, it's called the Upanisa Sutta. It's found in the, the, the one that I'm going to be referring to. Different, it's referred to in a, a few other places, but the one that I'm referring to is the Upanisa Sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya. And like dependent origination, a list of 12 links that influence each other. And just as I said for dependent origination, when we can see a list like that, it seems kind of linear and codified and discrete, um, separate experiences. And just like dependent origination, it's actually not that way. This teaching is much more fluid than that. It's not time-bound. It doesn't tick along like the second hands of a clock. There's, there's you know, very different time frames being involved here um, and also ways in which they loop back and feed each other and that we go through this process many times. But whereas dependent origination is a teaching of how we start with ignorance, end up in suffering, and because of the depth of the ignorance, just keep repeating that same patterning again and again because we get caught 
in craving, caught in thinking that happiness is out there somewhere if we can just hold on to it hard enough or fast enough. This teaching starts off at that place of suffering, that place that recognizes life is difficult, the first noble truth, there is suffering. If we have a mind and a body, suffering will be inherent in that condition, but it shows us the way out of suffering, goes directly from suffering to the freedom that's possible. We've talked about a number of teachings like this. I talked about the jhanic factors. Greg talked about the factors of enlightenment. And I know um, as a practitioner, I certainly would hear these kind of talks and really sort of shake my head and go, you know, what are they talking about? Or why is this helpful? You're just talking about things that don't apply to me or I haven't experienced. Um, But it's not to, we don't do these talks to, to judge or evaluate practice, to have a sense of not being uh, in, in a progression where you can feel, you know, here I am and this feels good. But it's actually more like a map. And I, I really like this analogy of these teachings as a map. And it does help to kind of locate ourselves not in a fixed way, but just with a sense that there is an unfolding here. And if we know the terrain, we can perhaps direct um, our progress a little, with a little more clarity or a little more understanding. And that just by naming these particular experiences, states of mind, uh, places in practice, we can recognize them more clearly. And even though this is a teaching that goes from suffering all the way to complete awakening, and you know we're obviously here because we haven't had that experience yet, I think all of us will know some aspect of what it's pointing to. And it gives confidence or encouragement that this can be known. These teachings and practices um, are, are available to us. The Buddha said, you know, if, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do so. But it is possible, so I do ask you to do this practice to, to free the mind. And I, I think of them kind of like guidebooks. You know, you, you're going to go to Italy or France or Cambodia or wherever you buy the Lonely Planet guidebook, and it has all these sections, and it says if you're in this region or this territory, don't miss this site. Don't, you know, don't miss this experience. You really get a sense of what to look out for. Well, this is the Buddha's guidebook to the landscape of the mind and to this territory of freedom. And if we know, you know, what are the signposts or the, the things to look out for, we can see how we can incline the mind. Even things, you know, that perhaps like um, in the factors of enlightenment, talking about rapture, people are like, rapture? What do you mean rapture? I haven't had any rapture. I don't know what rapture is. I've never had rapture. But, you know, all of us have had some experience in that realm, standing out on the porch, watching one of those beautiful sunsets that now seems like a while since we've had one. But, um, you know, you know, you stand out there and you're just captivated. The mind is still, it's absorbed, and it's pleasurable. Or out in the woods and you see a butterfly or a bird or a, a, a mushroom that just, just uh, attracts your attention and you're so fascinated by it. That's a quality of rapture. We can know that for ourselves. And knowing it in that experience, we can understand how it might deepen in the meditative experience. So it really is just, as I said, showing the terrain of our practice, not to to judge ourselves, but really possibilities and, and ways to incline the mind to notice wholesome states. And that's going to be a lot of what I'll be emphasizing tonight to notice wholesome states of mind when they are present, to see how they're onward leading, and to see we can cultivate them. The practice of the Brahma-viharas really clearly shows that, that we can deliberately, through practices, incline the mind and heart to more joy or more kindness or more compassion. So the mind is trainable, and these kinds of teachings show us the direction that we can train our minds and hearts towards. But when we think of practice as a journey, Greg spoke last night about practice as a path, it can be very easy to think of it as an outward kind of journey, you know, that I'm here and I've got to get somewhere else. 
that's not here, that's not available here. And it's really important to recognize that obviously what we're talking about here is an inner journey that's not time-bound. It's certainly not bound by space or any sense of, of location, but something that's available and immediate. As meditation is becoming more commonplace in the West, more understood, more part, I often say part of the mainstream, and people who say to me, you are nowhere near mainstream yet, you know, it might seem to you, but still way out in left field. But anyway, more known than it used to be, you can tell that by the number of cartoons that get created about the practice of meditating. You know, yoga you know, was about yoga for a while, now it's about meditation. One that I saw a while ago depicts this idea of how meditation is a journey, that we go somewhere, and it's a couple sitting in front of a television, and the bubble is coming, obviously, out of the television as an advertisement for a show that's coming up. And what it says is, this week on the amazing race to enlightenment, you know that reality show Amazing Race where they, I never watched it, but they go and, you know, one of those competitive reality shows. On the amazing race to enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy eliminate the relentless clinging to the self? <laughs> so they're kind of getting what we're talking about, but you know, obviously not quite yet. But this is not an outer journey. You don't get a reward of that kind at the end or your 15 minutes of fame. It really is an inner awakening, an inner journey that can be somewhat invisible from the outside. And what I love about these kind of teachings is that they show us that possibility. Starting right here, this teaching begins with suffering, the human condition. And we don't have to go too far to find suffering. That's not something we have to go chasing after. <clears throat> and to see that it is a, there is a progressive progressional nature to it, but again, as I said, it's not, you know, step by step, lockstep, linear, these discrete experiences. But this kind of flow of experiences that happens that influence each other with feedback loops. And it emphasizes how we need a firm foundation to, to undertake this journey. That it's not about just attaining, you know, bliss or enlightenment, but there are things that we can do in these foundational stages, uh, cultivating faith, contentment, a sense of ease in mind and body, that really are necessary for this whole process to unfold. And so in this teaching, again, don't want it to seem that, you know, you are you at one step and then it's like going through school, you know, first grade, second grade, third grade. Um, it's much more fluid than that. And that, you know, sometimes we go through certain parts of the cycle over and over again. And that's actually helpful, beneficial as we create the foundation for the later stages. And you can see that it might be something that could develop over I would think a long practice period because in the teaching it's really talking about full awakening. So a long practice period might be something we're working with over a lifetime, over the lifetime of our practice. Again, in the Buddhist cosmological view, might be something we're working on over many lifetimes. So again, it's not a question of you know getting to the end, the race to enlightenment but actually just trusting and understanding your practice and where you are right now. And in reading this, you know, the Buddha gives this teaching. In some ways, you can see how he developed it from his own experience. He was a young prince who lived a life of luxury, um, but gave that up and, and set off for him in his quest for enlightenment. But I actually think that it probably more came, I have no basis for this, but just my conjecture, from his watching other people as he guided them on this path of practice. He would just see this kind of process over and over again. Because he gave this teaching at Savati, um, the Jetta Grove, and he didn't start teaching there for some time, I don't know how many years until he was given that piece of property and built a monastery there. So it was some time into his dispensation that he gave this teaching. So I just 
love the sense of the Buddha watching people go through this kind of process and really seeing how it had this developmental nature to it and that naming it in this way was actually helpful for that, for their unfolding. So as I said, this teaching takes off from a dependent origination, but it's not a circle. It's not a list like that. I often think of it, it's actually like fireworks. It takes off and it goes in one direction only. And at the end, who was talking about, you know, the body breaking into blissful light or whatever? I don't know if it's quite that analogy. But anyway, going in that direction of, of you know, not non-returning to states of suffering. And what I like about this teaching and its relationship to dependent origination is we can often hear that the only place you can break that chain of suffering is at that place between contact and um, contact. Sorry, there's contact, then the place between vedna and craving, and that that's where we have to pay attention. And if we miss that moment then there we are, stuck again on that cycle. I think I said it in my teaching, I don't believe that's actually so. I think wherever we wake up, we can bring mindfulness, clear seeing to the experience and and, and, uh, end a particular uh, cycle of dependent arising. But here it very clearly says that we can be in suffering and find a way out. Suffering actually is a doorway to... um, uh, to, to awakening. And this, I think, is very helpful for us to see that we don't have to be a different person to be on this path and to bring understanding to it. It begins right there with suffering. And it shows us the connections. Why I think this is helpful, as I said earlier, it shows us that we need to have this foundation of basic well-being, basic trust in our capacity, in our minds and our bodies to do this kind of work. And that that's important. We can't bypass that or through our quest, our samvega for awakening, you know, nibbana or bust kind of uh, intensity. It's not that helpful. We really need to do this kind of foundational work to have this process unfold in this deep and powerful way. So we need to pay attention and honor the mind and body where it is right now. There's no no spiritual bypass really doesn't work. It's not like heart surgery, the spiritual surgery that we need to do. There's no around, there's only through and through these different uh, kinds of experiences. And this this sense of contentment and well-being being essential on the path, really very instructive. The Buddha himself, again, remembering his story, I said about how he left his life of luxury, but he tried these ascetic practices first. He actually dove into the suffering nature and thought that was a way, just the suffering was a way out, and saw that wasn't so. And so took some milk rice, started to take care of the body, strengthen the body so he could have the capacity to uh, go to awakening. And this is a real clear indicator to us about what he called the middle way that includes well-being, experiences like joy and happiness and contentment, that we really need to recognize and cultivate those as part of our unfolding practice. And in these lists, what we always see is that each stage is a refinement of the earlier stage, is conditioned by the earlier stage, and that there's a thread in the earlier stage, which if we can recognize, is what's onward leading. And so that's part of the mindfulness that we need to bring to this in, in understanding these states, to see how, how they merge into each other. Again, they're not sort of static, separate components, but this, this um, mysterious unfolding, this connected unfolding. So the list, um, this sequence of transcendent dependent arising, 
Like the jhana factors that I spoke about a few weeks ago, the factors of enlightenment, many of the lists, there's an arc to it. And again, I, I found it helpful just to recognize that for myself, that most of these lists that are onward leading have a sense of foundational qualities that we can actually sort of somewhat actively or with intention cultivate. Then they tend to have energizing qualities that give us um, the energy for practice, that motivation for practice. They usually go through a calming section and then deepen into the wisdom section. And this list goes through the same kind of sequence. So as I said, it starts with suffering, with dukkha. That's one of the foundation um, qualities. But what, what... suffering leads to, where, where the, the pivotal shift comes, is to faith. And I'll talk more about this. I'll just go through the list here. Suffering leads to faith. These are the foundation qualities. The energetic qualities we've talked a little bit about, joy, rapture. Um, rapture is one of the factors of enlightenment, one of the factors I spoke about. The calming factors are tranquility, happiness, and concentration. And then this leads to the wisdom factors, knowledge and vision of things as they are, then to disenchantment, dispassion, emancipation or liberation, and then knowledge of destruction of the taints. So that's the whole list. I'll go through them one by one. So it begins with suffering, taking off, really, as I said, almost like fireworks. You think of Dependent origination like a Catherine wheel, you know, those ones that go round and round. But this takes off, it explodes, and it only goes in one direction. So from this first noble truth, the truth of suffering, we have a mind and a body, there will be suffering. But what's interesting is, why is it noble suffering? What, excuse me. What's noble about suffering? Suffering sucks, doesn't it? I mean, you know, why, why would we want to investigate suffering, go towards suffering? Gil Fronsdale said this so clearly. He said, it's noble when we find a path in it. And this is what's happening here. It's noble when it turns us to the Dhamma, to seeing things clearly. That's what makes it noble. And it's certainly noble when it leads us to finding a way out of suffering. As Ajahn Chah said, I think we've said this already, there's a kind of suffering that leads to more suffering and the kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering. What we're experiencing here, as challenging as it might be at times, hopefully is a suffering that leads to the end of suffering, of really coming to understand the causes and conditions of our suffering and not being so lost in it, not being helpless in the face of suffering, but actually using it to understand um, what this life experience is like, what's happening for us. And so we've talked a lot about suffering. It was what got the Buddha on his quest for awakening. He lived a very um, cosseted life. He was a kind of a prince, very wealthy background, all the sense pleasures. But when he encountered old age sickness and death, he was horrified, and that's literally the words that he, was, he would use, horrified. He looked out at the world and said, how can people go on living as they're doing, knowing this is going to happen to them in some form or other, old age, sickness, and death? And it impelled him on his journey of awakening. We spend so much of our energy trying to avoid suffering, trying to deny the reality of suffering. Old age, sickness, and death, you know, we hide it away tidily in hospitals and hospices and nursing homes. You, you know, not, if you travel in Asia, you see it all around, the, the difficulties of people's lives and old people out, you know, making their way in the world in the way, taking care of things in the way they do. And here, you know, sometimes you can just not see that. You certainly don't see it out on the streets. It's hidden away. I remember reading about Stephen Levine, who's a teacher in this tradition, but often teaches about death and dying. And he would give these workshops where people would come to hear those teachings. So he'd be talking about death and dying. And always at some point, he would just drop the question in in the middle of whatever he was talking about. And so who right here is going to die? 
And he said, inevitably, only about half the people would put their hands up, because it's like, <laughs> well, not me. You know, I'm here. I'm alive. It's not going to happen to me. And yeah, you know, we all know in some theoretical way that we're going to die, but me? You know, that this is going to come to an end? It's just so hard to comprehend that the mind just doesn't go there. And so reflecting on this, seeing that this is inevitable for all of us, this is how suffering becomes a doorway, because we're, we're inspired to find a way out. And of course, it's suffering, our own individual suffering, that's brought probably nearly all of us on this path, wanting to figure this out. How do we do this as a human being? How do we make our way in the world? And it was perhaps extreme suffering of great loss, injury, uh, grief. But perhaps it was just feelings of discontent or unsatisfactoriness that it seemed like there should be more than this to a human life, not just about chasing material possessions or getting the right kind of career. So all of these questions about what life is all about impel us on the path. And sometimes it seems the path involves more suffering, right? You know, on a retreat like this, it can seem that way. Um, Retreats are difficult, challenging, mind, body, day after day, the same schedule, the same things happening, the same mind over and over again. And it's difficult. Certainly, we don't design retreats to be suffering, but it's what we experience. But part of it is we actually just get more sensitive, We really feel the impact of the world, the impact of our mind states. We see the nature of our mind and how crazy it is at times, how it just leads us down these dead-end tracks and we get lost in confusion and hatred and judging. So we see our own suffering and, of course, we open to the universal suffering in the world. But... We, unlike the Buddha, have a path of practice, have guides on this path. And so we can find how to use suffering as a doorway to deepening and to opening. And there are amazing examples of people in this world who have done this. I mean, at the moment, Aung San Suu Kyi, she is just amazing. Everything she's experienced in her life, you know, father is killed, um, all of the tragedies in Burma under house arrest for all those years, not able to see her family, her husband died because she was in house arrest and wouldn't leave Burma. I mean, not because, she couldn't see him and he died, she wasn't able to be with him, didn't see her sons for 10 years or more. And yet during that time, she continued her practice and did a lot of metta. And she's come out of that, that imprisonment as this radiant being of light and goodness. It's just amazing. Finally able to receive her Nobel Peace Prize after all those years of, of imprisonment. Somehow has transformed all of that suffering through, through her practice into this radiant light that she expresses. So whereas in the cycle of dependent origination, we go from suffering through the cycle again and again, get stuck in ignorance and keep repeating the same actions, here the shift is that suffering leads to faith. And the faith is that there is a way out, that we don't have to be stuck in that cycle of suffering that there is a different way of relating to our experience so that we don't have to keep going in those repetitive patterns. This is a huge turning point to really open to the suffering, not deny the suffering, but actually use it as a foundational fuel for our practice out of that conviction, just like the Buddha had, that it's possible to awaken. It's possible to lessen our suffering and the suffering that we cause others. And the way the sutta is sequenced, what what the Buddha says is, suffering is the supportive condition for faith to arise. The supportive condition. That faith doesn't come about just by accident or because we're happy as can be, but it's actually suffering that allows us to find this avenue of faith. The Pali word is sadha, and it literally means to place one's heart upon. 
I love that definition of faith, of just really landing in something and trusting it. And in this case, it's trusting the Dharma, but also trusting our capacity to practice and to, to be on this path and to see how much of how important it is in this unfolding. I know for me, it wasn't something I had an easy relationship to. Um, I'm not a bhakti, they say, you know, a person that is into a lot of devotion. But I do clearly remember on my first retreat in India, 1981 or something, with S.N. Goenka. It was a 10-day retreat. It was so intense. You know, the condi- I w- we were in a kind of tent encampment in India, very simple accommodations and food. And, on, you know, hour-long sits with, I, I had a towel that I was sitting on. That was my zafu, that, you know, on a concrete floor. It was very uncomfortable. But there was a truth that he spoke that just kind of lit my mind up. And what I can remember thinking is, you mean there's a way out? You mean I don't have to keep on causing myself and other people suffering? That was a revelation. Nothing I had experienced so far and the limited, I was 25 years old, my limited experience of life had led me to think that was possible. So it just lit something up in me that really affected the rest of the unfolding of my life because every time after that I had to make a major decision about where should I go, what should I do. You know, I was 25, living in India with a backpack. I could go anywhere. was how can I get closer to the Dhamma? How can I be with Dhamma people? How can I serve the Dhamma? And my whole life really unfolded out of those kinds of decisions. But I also remember at the end of that retreat, you know, there was about 100 people at the retreat, and we were all very excitedly talking afterwards. And it was my first retreat. I was just kind of blown away. And I was speaking to uh, another woman who was much more experienced than I. I don't know how many years she'd been practicing. But she said something like, oh, yeah, this practice is so helpful for me. I try to do at least one or two retreats every year. And I remember my young Huber saying, Inwardly, I didn't say it to her. One or two retreats a year? How pathetic is that? You know, if you're really serious, it's like every month or nonstop or go ordain. And I had this fire for practice. And then, of course, reality hit and I had to make a living and and all the other things that happened. But there really was that initial connection. And I'm sure all of you have similar kinds of stories of hearing the teachings and just something saying, oh, yeah. Someone's saying the truth here. I'm hearing something that resonates for me, whatever level. And so there are different types of faith. You know, we can have blind faith where it's really just trusting the experience or the words of another. It sounds good. We want that for ourselves, but we don't know it. And then we can have bright faith that has a sense of that. And I think that's what I had. I had a kind of bright faith that was uh, very illuminated, but it wasn't very grounded. But as we practice, as we go on, we can have what's called verified faith, where we really know for ourselves that this is possible, this transformation is possible. We've tasted it for ourselves and can lead then to unshakable faith, where it just doesn't, it isn't a question that this is the path we're on and that it's possible to find freedom. Sharon Salzberg has this great book on faith. It's only small, but it's, it's so worth reading because... As I said, it's not a, even though I had that, that have and always have had that kind of faith in the practice, it didn't uh, express itself easily for me outwardly. And she says in this book, I want to encourage delight in the word faith, to reclaim faith as fresh, vibrant, intelligent, and liberating. This is a faith that emphasizes a foundation of love and respect for ourselves. Really is something that can enliven our practice and support us. And so it's necessary, this kind of faith. And you all have it. No one signs up for a six-week or three-month retreat without a great deal of faith. It may have been challenged quite a number of times already on this retreat, but something has touched you that has led you to make this kind of commitment out of a faith, out of a trust in the practice. The Buddha said, faith is the beginning of all good things. 
he began his search out of a faith that it was possible, even as he tried all of these dead ends that he practiced. They were all part of his unfolding, and he never lost that conviction that it was possible. So this sense of faith, it's interesting that the next uh, factor is joy. Faith is a supportive factor for joy. And again, faith can sometimes seem a little earnest, a little um, not joyful perhaps, but to actually find the joy, and this is what I want to keep repeating, in the faith, how much happiness we can have when faith is really grounded in us, when we have a sense of trust in our capacity, when we're not really swayed by the thoughts of who are you and you can't do this and who, you know, who do you think you are, but actually, no, you know, it's possible, it's possible for me, that there's a gladness that comes out of that. And this is this next factor of joy, pomoja, joy or delight. And this kind of joy isn't the joy of getting our sensual desires met, of material possessions or the giddiness of certain experiences. It's actually a meditative joy. It's the kind of joy when the mind is not so troubled by the hindrances. And so as the Buddha says, uh, Pamoja develops with the abandonment of the five hindrances. When the practitioner sees the five hindrances abandoned in herself, Gladness arises within her, thus gladdened rapture arises. And when she is rapturous, rapturous, the body becomes tranquil. This is actually the next uh, parts of this sequence. That joy, this sense of gladness or delight, this, this pleasure in experience, when the hindrances, aren't at, the hindrances are at bay, So the mind is not troubled, it's not pushed and pulled by wanting and not wanting, by restlessness or desire or doubt or sleepiness. We can start to really appreciate ourselves, our capacity for practice, our lives. It's very uh, intertwined with gratitude, which many of you have expressed. Gratitude to be able to practice, to this place for supporting us. It's a beautiful quality of mind. So really seeing joy, these kinds of states, as essential on the path. This is one of the things I really want to emphasize in this talk tonight. Analayo, the great uh, Buddhist scholar who wrote the book on Satipatthana that I um, really highly recommend, uh, he said, the entire scheme of this path, the gradual training, can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. It's not how we usually understand the path. You know, we talk a lot about suffering. We experience a lot of suffering. But to really see it as a refining of joy. I think I talked in my other talk the other day about how, you know, happiness is in right now. Well, so is joy. Joy and happiness really go together. And you Many of you probably know James Barras, whom we call Mr. Joy, um, because he's really made it the focus of his practice and his teachings for many years now. He's written a great book called Awakening Joy and also does a series of monthly classes that literally thousands of people do because he makes them available online. I've I've gone and taught at his class. It's really uh, a very happy place to be. Uh, people practicing joy. And this is a quote from someone who did the class with James. I have an increased awareness of joyfulness and the possibility of cultivating it. I also understand better how to experience it rather than the old random way of simply being surprised or even worse, unaware of its presence. I now practice choosing to see the joy inherent in many situations rather than the negative or painful aspects. Again, this is highlighting the choice that we have more than we think to experience, to open to, to incline towards this quality of joy, happiness, Um, that it's possible, that it's here, even if it's really subtle, even if it's, you know, something very simple a cup of tea at the right time, or, you know, the sunset or a warm breeze, to really notice and incline the mind towards encouraging that and to feel it as beneficial as wholesome. This is so helpful, so important. 
And it said that joy is a supportive condition for rapture. This is the next factor. Rapture or pity. Again, Greg spoke about it in the Seven Factors of Enlightenment. I spoke about it as a jhanic factor. It's a mental factor, a factor of mind, where the mind is so absorbed in its chosen object that it delights in it, that it doesn't want to go anywhere else. And it can manifest, as we've said, by strong physical sensations, uplifting, pushing, vibrating, lightening of the visual field, or actually a sense of lightening in the body, electrical kind of impulses. Um, And it always sounds very appealing, and sometimes it is, and sometimes it actually can be challenging as this energy gets strong or coarse or really insistent. But what's happening, the functioning of rapture, is, as I said, to increase the absorption. It it feeds on itself as we delight in the meditation process and object. It actually really creates this very supportive feedback loop. The mind doesn't want to be anywhere else. It's happy to be in the present moment. It's happy to be with this experience. What's interesting is the next part of the sequence, that rapture is the supportive condition for tranquility, pasadi. Again, same as the seven factors, same sequencing. It's always interesting to me that such an energetic experience such as rapture leads to tranquility. But what happens in this sequencing is as the mind gets collected, as it gets absorbed, I think I pointed to this in my talk on the jhanic factors, there's always an inclination towards simplicity, to some kind of refinement. So as the energy of rapture subsides, the mind is, is collected and, and, and uh, connected to its meditation object. And so as the energy dissipates a little, it gets more imbalanced, it's naturally that tranquility or calm can arise. And there's also, as the pity gets strong, a lack of thought. The hindrances, again, temporar- temporarily kept at bay. So the mind can just kind of settle easily into this calmness. And so there's this uh, sense of, of calm, tranquility, the mind quietening. Again, this kind of refinement that I talked about. Then tranquility is the supportive condition for sukha, for happiness, one of the jhanic factors that I spoke about. This kind of happiness is a meditative experience. Again, like the joy, it's not an external, really excited happiness, but a a quiet contentment, happy contentment of mind and body, has a sweetness to it. And so again, in the tranquility, often people, when they report states of tranquility, they can come in saying, "Uh, it's boring, nothing much happening, you know, where's the drama, where's the juice in practice? And we always like point towards, well, what's actually there? Is This is actually calm. Don't, you know, then the aversive aspect of it is, this is boring. Boredom is just a lack of interest. We get interested in the tranquility, stay connected to it. See if you can find the pleasantness of it. See if you can find the pleasantness in that stillness. That's what leads to this very sublime kind of happiness, sukha. Then there's another transition that happens that, again, is really important. Not that we, you know have to try to have it, but to understand as as we deepen in our practice, sukha is the supportive condition for concentration. Most of us think that the supportive condition for concentration is beating ourselves up, trying harder, sitting longer, walking walking slower, you know, contracting ourselves with gritted teeth and hair on fire or whatever. That is not in this list, that kind of practice. Sukha as the supportive condition for concentration. I found this such a revelation, and it's so hard to remember because we all over-effort when we're trying to get concentrated. I mean, it's almost inevitable. And to really trust that what is a supportive condition is a sense of ease and well-being and contentment 
and that's what will allow the mind to deepen into concentration. Again, all of you can see how all of these factors are playing in. The rapture, there's absorption, there's tranquility, there's calm, there's this subtle happiness that's sweet and, and soft. That's what allows the mind to deepen. Not pushing, not striving, not judging, not getting the whip out, but actually allowing the sense of ease and relaxation. This is what leads to concentration, to samadhi. What the kind of concentration we're talking about here develops by successive moments of mindfulness. It's why we've been emphasizing continuity. And of course it can deepen into jhana, and that's another whole discourse that could be given about jhana and the deepening of jhana. But really, it's just enough concentration. We often talk about access concentration, neighborhood concentration, because it's near enough to jhana for the mind to really be focused, really be one-pointed, that ekagata quality being there. And that's enough concentration for the mind to turn to wisdom. We don't get concentrated for concentration's sake. It's not an end in itself. As pleasant as it can be and as kind of gratifying, it's like, I've got it, I got concentrated, I'm concentrated, that's all I'm looking for. We get concentrated in order to be able to turn the concentrated mind to clear seeing. And one of the, the qualities that the Buddha talked about that this concentrated ha- mind has, it's malleable, flexible, and steady. And I love these terms. It's malleable, it's trainable, it's actually responsive. It's flexible. It can shift and move in response to experience and to our intentions and to our inclinations of the mind. And it's steady. It actually can pay attention moment to moment to what's happening. So we take this concentrated mind and turn it to changing experience, turn it to seeing things as they are. And as again we've said, what we see when we look with this kind of steadiness is the inherent unreliability of experience. We see how impermanent it is, that there is nothing solid there at the core, at the heart. This is what the whole cycle of dependent origination shows is there's nothing, there's no self there, there's nothing solid. There's just these processes happening over and over again. And so we see that with this mind that's steady. So concentration leads to knowledge and vision of things as they are. Yata Bhutta Jnana Dasana, I think Carol spoke about this the other night. She was always saying, Yata Bhutta, things as they have come to be. This is the mind that sees clearly how things unfold. This is the wisdom that Joseph was talking about this morning. When the Buddha uses these terms, knowledge and vision, it's not intellectual knowledge. It's not just seeing. It's really um, uh, immediate understanding. It's, it's insight. It's, it's, it's direct. <clears throat> So as we start to see the things the way they are, leads to the next of these factors, which is nibida. This term used to be translated revulsion or disgust. And I was always a little confused by that because, you know, we've talked about joy and happiness and tranquility and these beautiful states and clear seeing. And what do you see? Ugh, revulsion and disgust. Well, who wants that, you know, as a path of practice? But the modern, more modern scholars have come to see that that's actually a mistranslation of the term. Andy Olensky, who's a scholar in residence over at BCBS, says that most literally nibida means without finding, not able to find. And the translation he and Bhikkhu Bodhi like is disenchantment. And I think that's great. We were enchanted. We were caught in craving, caught in all of the lust for experience. And we were blinded by that illusion. And we get disenchanted by experience. We're not, no longer so fascinated. Andy says, there is a story in the text that usefully illustrates the meaning of this most important of terms, 
A dog stumbles across a bone that has been exposed to the elements for many months and is therefore bleached of any residual flesh or marrow. The dog gnaws on it for some time before he finally determines that he is not finding any satisfaction in the bone, and he thus turns away from it in disgust. It is not that the bone is intrinsically disgusting. It is rather the case that the dog's raging desire for meat just will not be satisfied by the bone. He is enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously at the bone, but when he finally wakes up to the truth that the bone is empty of anything that will offer him satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted and spits it out. So this is a a mindset that we perhaps again already know. How many things have you been enchanted with in your life? that you subsequently became disenchanted with. A love object, some kind of passionate activity, a hobby, you know, some uh, remodel project in your home, some activity that you used to do so passionately. And where is that passion now? It's just it no longer serves that purpose. Hopefully by this time of the retreat, you have a little bit that relationship to your thoughts, right? Just no longer so enchanted by them, believing them, wanting to indulge in them, wanting to kind of cozy up and let them run the show. It's like, I've just seen that so many times. You know, a simple example, can you remember, I don't know, each of us different number of years ago, when happiness was coming home from school and turning on the television and watching, like, what, Gilligan's Island, And, you know, who would want to watch Gilligan's Island? Maybe, you know, in the middle of this retreat, you might want to watch Gilligan's Island. It's like anything except my mind. But, you know, just that sense, it doesn't do it anymore. It used to be that was happiness. And this Nibbida says, no, it's not there anymore. And so it turns away. And this turning away leads to the next factor, which is dispassion, viraga. Raga means lust or passion, viraga dispassion. Again, not not out of aversion or a forceful, get this out of here, but because we don't see the satisfaction, the mind moves to dispassion, to letting go. And this is a natural turning away in the talks we've given about renunciation or relinquishment. It's not out of a rejecting but knowing there's not the kind of happiness available that we thought was there. And so the mind naturally turns away. And it said, this is a turning point in the path of practice. The previous other uh, sequences were kind of in the realm of the relative. And it's at this point the mind turns to the transcendent. It actually lets go of its obsession with the six sense doors and getting happiness or satisfaction through them, and turns to what's called the deathless element, or the unconditioned, to what's not changing, to what's not subject to change. So there's a a shift that happens. And there's that real knowing that the mind can open into freedom, which is the next stage, liberation, vimuti, the freedom that the Buddha spoke about comes out of this mind that's let go of its attachments, is no longer bound, is no longer clinging, is no longer suffering in that same way. The mind that's free of greed, aversion, and delusion, this mind becomes radiant and bright. It's no longer visited by those defilements, those difficulties of mind. And what's interesting is This process doesn't stop there. It actually is another final stage, which is knowledge that that has happened. It's called knowledge of destruction of the Tates. Asava, kaya, jnana. So this knowledge that liberation has happened, that the mind has been freed. And you'll see this cycle often as the Buddha talks about awakening, that there's the awakening moment and then the reviewing moment where it says, yes, this has happened. This is true. The Buddha says, the practitioner understands as it really is. This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is a cessation of suffering. This is the path to the cessation of suffering. These are the taints. 
This is the origin of the taints. This is a cessation of the taints. This is the path to the cessation of the taints. As she is knowing and seeing this, her mind is liberated from the taint of sensuality, from the taint of existence, and from the taint of ignorance. When it is liberated, the knowledge arises in her. It is liberated. This is the Buddha saying, done is what had to be done, that this has happened. Now again, this is a pointing to final release, the awakening of full liberation. But we've all had moments here on this retreat of this kind of opening, this kind of deep and profound letting go, where you've seen some particular construct of suffering, some mind pattern, some reactivity, some tendency towards judging, and you've seen it end. You've seen that in that moment, it's not there. It does not exist. Not to say that it mightn't come back in some form, but the very seeing of its ending means that it's not permanent. It's not who you truly are. And we start to trust that this temporary nibbana that Ajahn Buddha talked Ajahn Buddhadasa talked about, where he said if we didn't all experience it every day, we'd go crazy. That the mind has these moments of release, of letting go, of clear knowing of the possibility of the path and of awakening. We can know this. These, and that, that on this path there are many moments of enlightenment. You know, Traditionally there are four, but I actually think there are many. And our recognition of the power of them, of these moments of calm, of clear seeing, that you know, when, when mindfulness is really clear, the mind isn't troubled. There is actually a freedom from greed and aversion and delusion in that knowing, in that f- profound depth of mindfulness. And so to see the possibilities that are here in each moment, to actually inclined towards, to encourage, to find the threads of these different aspects of experience and know that this is the path, this is the direction we go in. And I know this can seem complicated. Anything with 12 steps is inherently complicated and troubling to the mind. I really want to keep it simple about these central aspects of the, the foundation of, of joy and contentment the, 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 the gladdening of the mind that's so important, that sukha, happiness, leads to concentration, and that all we have to do is keep going. As Bhikkhu Bodhi said, there are only two things you need to be successful in your spiritual practice. Only two things. To start and to keep going. And this is what these kind of teachings point to, that there's an onward-leading nature to them and that we can know this for ourselves. As Ajahn Chah says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll have complete peace. So I want to just finish with the words of the Buddha, the ending of this sutta because it's a lovely imagery. Just as monks, when rain descends heavily upon some mountaintop, the water flows down along with the slope and fills the clefts, gullies, and creeks. These being filled up, fill up the pools. These being filled up, filled, fill up the ponds. These being filled up, fill up the streams. These being filled, fill up the rivers. And the rivers being filled up, fill up the great ocean. In the same way, monks, ignorance is a supportive condition for sankharas, karmic formations. And he goes on to go through the whole chain of dependent origination, but then says, suffering is the supportive condition for faith. Faith is a supportive condition for joy. Joy is a supportive condition for rapture. Rapture is a supportive condition for tranquility. Tranquility is a supportive condition for happiness. Happiness is the supporting condition for concentration. Concentration is the supporting condition for knowledge and vision of things as they really are. The knowledge and vision of things as they really are is the supportive condition for disenchantment. Disenchantment is the supporting condition for dispassion, dispassion for emancipation, and emancipation is the supportive condition 
for knowledge of destruction of the taints. So just as water always finds its way to the ocean, this path goes in one direction only, to greater freedom, greater happiness, and greater joy. So let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.